Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Matt, uh, one of the pastors here. Blake is out. He was getting ready for uh, some of the summer series. And so uh, I am going to cover Genesis 42 to 50 this morning. Uh, we're not going to read all of those verses, but you know, Blake left and he said, uh, you just, you got the whole rest of the book. So uh, I am on. Uh, next week, he's actually going to start, we'll finish up Joseph's life this week. And next week, uh, Blake will dive into how does Jesus relate to the book of Genesis. So we'll kind of tie everything together as the year closes out. And as the series on Genesis closes out. But this morning we will finish up the life of Joseph from Genesis 42 to 50. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and get there and we'll go through that together. I'm going to narrate some of it rather than reading it. Uh, As we start, uh, I want to talk about a classic book by Alexander Dumas. Uh, The book is called The Count of Monte Cristo. Uh, Many of you have read it. Uh, If you haven't read it, you've probably seen one of the several movie adaptations of the book. The story, in a nutshell, is about a man named Edmund Dantes. Edmund is a man who finds himself framed by three of his friends. They, they are jealous of him. His friends are jealous of him. One of them is jealous of his beautiful fiance, Mercedes. Another is jealous of his rising career. So they frame him for political treason. And Edmund goes to prison for a crime he did not commit, and he's there for six long years. After six years, he finds a way of escape, and because of some information he received from a friend while he was in jail, uh, he makes his way to the Isle of Monte Cristo, where he uncovers a buried treasure, a huge buried treasure. And he gets the treasure, and he utilizes it to transform his appearance and to set up castles and all kinds of wealth for himself. And then he takes his treasure and he uses it to return to France and get revenge on the three friends who set him up. And over the course of 10 years, Edmond Dantes plots and executes his revenge. I won't give away too much of the story except to say that his revenge is successful even more than he expects it to be. And throughout the whole book, Edmund Dante sees himself as God's agent of justice, as a divine instrument of revenge upon his enemies. And I read the book and I thought, this is a deeply emotionally satisfying novel. Because all of us, if we're honest, have had those moments where we've thought, I would love to be God's agent of revenge on those who have hurt me. I mean, who hasn't lain awake at night thinking about somebody who said something against you or did something to hurt you and thinking, if I had the chance, I would do this and this and this. Hoping and dreaming and thinking about your revenge. If we're honest, most of us have been in that position. I can remember being in junior high and lying awake at night thinking about some kids who were mean to me. And here's what I thought. One day I will be rich and famous. Right now I'm 0 for 2 as far as that goes. But I thought one day I will be rich and famous and I will have my revenge because then those kids who don't want to be my friend, they will want to be my friend because they will come to me and they will say, let us hang out with you because of who you are. And I will say, no. Right? You did not want to know me when I was small I will not let you know me when I'm large, right? That was what I thought in my mind. And uh, you've probably had those sort of moments. Maybe it was a small offense. Somebody said something that kind of hurt your feelings. Maybe it was a large one. 
And I'm aware that there are some in this room this morning that you're struggling with really large offenses, maybe a family member who abused you or hurt you in some way that still hurts, maybe a falling out with a friend where there was betrayal or lies or deception. Maybe it is uh, a spouse and there is anger and a rift that seems irreconcilable. And so you're in here this morning and you're really struggling with forgiveness and bitterness and all of the feelings that flood our heart when we're hurt and want to take revenge. Uh, We're going to see Joseph this week in a situation where he actually has the perfect opportunity to take revenge on the brothers who hurt him. Uh, If you remember Joseph's story, this is the third week of Joseph's story. And just to summarize his story again, uh, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers when he was 17. They were jealous of him because he was the favorite son of his father, remember? And so he went out to see them in the fields one day and they said, here comes this dreamer who talks about these dreams of us bowing down to him. Let's take him. Let's kill him. Instead of killing him, they take his special coat away. They toss him into a pit and plan to leave him there to die until they realize, hey, we can make money off of his pain. And they see some Midianites passing by and they pull him out of the pit. They sell him to the Midianites who then sell him into slavery in Egypt. And we don't learn this until later in the story, but it's clear that Joseph was begging and pleading for them not to do it. Please don't do this to me. Please let me go. And they ignored his cries, and they did it anyway. And now 20 years later, Joseph finds himself face to face with those brothers. And the question in the reader's mind as we read Genesis this morning is, what will Joseph do? Will he choose to forgive or will he choose to effect his revenge? Will he take the route of the Count of Monte Cristo and wreak havoc on their lives or will he instead choose to forgive and pursue reconciliation? Now, of course, what we see in the life of Joseph is he chooses forgiveness. And it's a fascinating story and so many of us are fascinated with the life of Joseph because the question is, how could he forgive what they did. Thirteen years he was in slavery and in prison. Over 20 years he's been separated from his family because of what they did. How does he forgive? And what we're going to see as we walk through this passage is that Joseph is able to forgive because he sees the power and the hand of God in his life. And Joseph recognizes that it's God's power that makes reconciliation a possibility. He releases them to God. And then he moves toward reconciliation. And we'll see this process of forgiveness and then actual reconciliation where he brings them back into a relationship with him. And it seems from a human perspective nearly an impossibility. And yet God's power accomplishes it. And the message is, I think, from this passage that there is no situation. There is no hurt that the power of God cannot overcome. Now, in human terms, not every relationship can or will be reconciled. And we know that. 
But because of the power of God, we pray for it and we seek it and we trust that it's ultimately what God desires and that it's ultimately possible. That's what we see in the life of Joseph. So we're going to start in Genesis chapter 42. And I'm going to summarize, I'm going to read some and then I'm going to summarize portions of this story. But start in Genesis 42 verse 1. Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt. And Jacob said to his sons, why are you staring at one another? He said, behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from that place so that we may live and not die. Then 10 brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, I am afraid that harm may befall him. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the ruler over all the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, where have you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had had about them and said to them, you are spies. You've come to look at the undefended parts of our land. Okay, so 20 years later, after Joseph is separated from his family, these brothers emerge and Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And that's certainly no surprise. Joseph looks like an Egyptian official at this point. His brothers have probably assumed that he's long since dead, but he sees them coming. And what's interesting is, is it says, in fact, they bow down before him. And what does Joseph remember? The dream that he had at the very beginning of this story where he dreamed that the sun and the moon and the stars would bow down to him, his father, his mother, his brothers, and here are his brothers in front of him. Let me ask you this question. At that moment, wouldn't you be just a little tempted to mention the dream? I mean, the dream is one of the major reasons they sold him down the river in the first place. Wouldn't you just want to go, hey, guys, remember the dream? Here's the dreamer. And here we are right? What's fascinating is he says nothing. And he's in a perfect place to get revenge. He's powerful. They need him. They're starving without what he can provide. I mean, this is a perfect opportunity, and yet Joseph doesn't take revenge. He could throw them in prison. He could deny them food. He could let them starve. He doesn't do those things. But what we'll see as we walk through the text is he moves toward reconciliation, even though it's painful. How does he do that? Ultimately, because of God's power. And I think there are key things that Joseph recognizes about God and his character that allow him to move forward toward reconciliation. And the first one is this, that Joseph sees God's plan and trusts God's plan. Joseph trusts God's plan. We're going to jump around just a little bit, but go to Genesis chapter 45. We're going to look at verses 4 through 9. This is right toward the end of this interaction with his brothers when he finally reveals himself. Verse 4 of chapter 45, Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer. And he said, I am your brother Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. 
And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. And we see in chapter 50, even after his father dies, Joseph says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And so Joseph looks and he sees the hand of God even in his suffering. And here's the key that allows Joseph, I think, to forgive. He recognizes his brother's never owned him. His brothers never owned him. And he says it explicitly, you didn't send me here, but God did. It doesn't excuse their evil. It doesn't excuse their guilt. But Joseph looks and he sees God never stopped being in control, even in my pain, even when they abused me, even for these last 20 years when I've sat here in Egypt and thought, why Am I here? God's hand was always on him, directing and moving him exactly where he wanted him. You see, it's not just God's power and sovereignty that I think allows Joseph to endure. It's also God's love. Back when Joseph first went into prison, Moses is very careful to tell us that God's loyal love, that's the Hebrew word hesed, God's loyal love is with him. The love that made a covenant with Abraham was always with Joseph, and he was never separated from the love of God. And so Joseph goes back to God's character, that he is in charge, and he has never left him. And so he says, I trust God's plan. He doesn't know why he's there. And in your situation, when you're struggling with forgiveness, The truth is you may never know why somebody did or said something to you. You may never in this life understand what God's plan is, but you know God's character, that God is powerful. As we sang, he's strong and he loves us. And the scripture reiterates it over and over and over again. Your life and my life, they are not random. God always has his hands on the wheel. And our understanding is finite, but he is infinite. Uh, My son is four years old, and he's just begun playing soccer, and he loves it. He loves going to the games. He loves the practices, Uh, and so he looks forward to the game all week long, and so earlier this week on Tuesday, uh, I told him, hey, tonight you have soccer practice, and I thought he'd be excited, and he goes, "Uh, okay, but when is the game? And I said, well, the game is on Saturday, not tonight. He goes, the game's not tonight. I go, no, and he goes, ah, And I said, what's wrong? And he goes, it's too long till the game. And I said, well, it's on Saturday. He goes, when's Saturday? I said, all right, this is Tuesday, right? So we have Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then Saturday. Well, that even just made it worse, right? He's like, oh no, you know, this is going to be forever. And I said, I said, would you like me to make you a little calendar and we can mark off the days. And he goes, I can't read it, right? And so the problem is when you are four, if something's not happening in the next couple of hours, it is never happening, (laughs) Because your perspective is so finite. And so what I had to tell him was I said, Samuel, just trust me, okay? You'll like practice and we'll go to the game on Saturday and I'll get you there when you need to get there. Trust me. You know me. You don't know what's happening. You don't know all the days of the week or how long it's going to be or any of that. Just trust me. 
You and I often stand in that position before God. When we have been hurt, when we have been injured, we often go, God, why? What's going on? I don't understand. What's your plan? And God's answer back, I think, to Joseph for these 20 years and to you and me is, trust my character. That in the grand scheme of eternity, you will bow before me because you know me through Jesus and you will see my plan and know that I never took my hands off the wheel. If you know Jesus, there's never a moment that you're separated from his love, even when you are being hurt, and that moves you to be able to forgive. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 to 39, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You never are experiencing a moment that God is not present, that God is not active. And so Joseph is able to release his brothers to God because he knows God has a plan. In Joseph's case, he's fortunate that he can look back and say, God sent me here to do this, to preserve your life so that he could fulfill his covenant to Abraham. Because remember, he made a covenant to Abraham that there would be descendants as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Guys, if you all die, that covenant can't be fulfilled. And I'm here to save your life. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. And so he trusts God's plan. But he also trusts the justice of God. He trusts the justice of God. In chapter 50, verse 19, it's interesting. Chapter 50 uh, tells the story of Jacob, their father, dying. And after Jacob dies, the 12 brothers go, this is probably the moment where Joseph will take his revenge. See, Joseph probably just saved us because of our father, because he loved Jacob. But now that Jacob is gone, what's to stop Joseph from killing us? And so they write a letter to Joseph and it's this long apology and they seek forgiveness again and they say, Joseph, please forgive us. Uh, We were wrong. And Joseph sends a note back and the first thing he says is this, am I in the place of God? And the implied answer is no. He says, I trust the justice of God so I can forgive. If there's any punishing to be done, it's God's. If there's any justice to be enforced, God has the right, not me. And so he releases them to the judgment of God. And he says, I forgive you. And he can move toward reconciliation, which we'll see. One of the most powerful testimonies I heard while I was in seminary was there was a PhD student who taught a portion of one of my classes, and his name was Celestin Musakura. Celestin was from Rwanda, and if you're familiar at all with the history of Rwanda in the last 20 years, you know of the genocide, uh, the terrible genocide that occurred in Rwanda in 1994, right around 20 years ago. And Celestin was out of the country studying when that genocide happened, but he came back into the country and he saw how uh, men and women, even though they uh, proclaimed the name of Christ, they were not living out the forgiveness and reconciliation of Christ. And so you had family members divided and you had churches divided along tribal lines between Hutu and Tutsi rather than uniting under the name of Christ. And so Celestin had been studying the reconciliation offered to us in Jesus Christ and said, I'm going to go back and preach this message message of forgiveness. Four years later, he learned that in a wave of revenge killings after the genocide, 
Several members of his own family were killed. His father, stepbrother, his stepbrother's family, an adopted sister, they were killed along with 70 members of his own village. So he went back to try to find some family members. He thought his mom was dead as well. Turned out she was alive and had fled and was in a refugee camp. She had saved her own granddaughter from a pile of bodies and fled to a refugee camp. And he said when he heard the news, you know what he wanted? He wanted justice. He wanted revenge. And yet as you hear him speak, it's clear that the answer for him in that moment for why he would not seek revenge, why he would forgive, was this, that all questions of justice are answered ultimately at the cross of Jesus. That in Jesus Christ, God poured out his anger and wrath towards sin, and Jesus took it on our behalf and rose again, defeating sin and death so that justice has been served and I don't have to seek it anymore in human terms. I don't have to take revenge because all of those questions are answered in Jesus Christ. And so forgiveness is at the very heart of the gospel, he says, because of what God has done for us in Jesus. And so as a reflection of that, we forgive. We release the debt that others have toward us. We let it go. And that's what Joseph is able to do. I'm not in the place of God. I trust his justice. And if there is punishment to be had, he will affect it. That's a hard thing to do. When you've been hurt, say, God, I trust you. And because you forgave me when I was your enemy, I can now forgive. And yet that's what God has done for us. While we were sinners, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. And you see this theme weave its way throughout the Scripture, and that's why Paul says in Romans 12, do not take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. God is in charge. Joseph says, I'm not in the place of God. God will deal with you in his timing, in his way. So he trusts them to the justice of God and is able to move on from there. And then what we see throughout this passage is not only does Joseph trust God's plan, he trusts God's justice, but he also seeks reconciliation. In other words, he doesn't just forgive. Forgiveness is wonderful, but he moves toward reconciliation. And let me draw this distinction for you. Forgiveness, again, means I say, I I am not owed anything by you. If you have hurt me, I will not seek retribution. I will not demand that you pay me back. I will not try to make you suffer. That's forgiveness. I release this to God. Reconciliation now says, I'm going to draw you back in to a relationship with me. And that often is extremely difficult, if not impossible. In fact, in human terms, there are relationships that we know cannot be reconciled. Maybe one party is dead and you cannot reconcile. Maybe one party is so unrepentant and has not changed and insists on continuing to hurt you. And so although you can forgive and release them to God, you know that it would not not be wise to continue the relationship as it was before. And so reconciliation in human terms may not be possible, which is why in Romans 12, Paul says, as far as it depends on you, 
be at peace with everyone. And what we see in Joseph is that he seeks reconciliation. This is an interesting passage, verses 42 to 45, because you see all kinds of emotions and actions going on with Joseph. He cries sometimes. He draws his brothers close sometimes. He sends them away. He puts them in prison. And it's very confusing to understand what is happening. And ultimately what's happening is Joseph is asking the question, can I trust you and draw you near again? But this is critical. If he had not forgiven Many years before, he wouldn't have even gone through that process. Because again, Joseph is in the perfect place to hurt them, to send them away without food, to put them in jail, to have them executed. He does none of those things. And you see, Joseph has forgiven, even though the pain is still there, but now he moves towards something even greater, and that is to be their brother again. It's remarkable. After the first service, somebody was talking to me about this passage, and he just said, I just, I read that story of Joseph, and I I don't know that I would ever be able to do that after what they did. They threw him in a pit and left him for dead. They sold him into slavery, his brothers. And yet Joseph still, because he knows the power of God and trusts the character of God, he seeks reconciliation. I know that for many, there are relationships where you're afraid to seek reconciliation. Maybe you haven't even tried because you're just so angry and you're holding on to that bitterness. And it may be impossible in human terms, but what we see in Joseph is Joseph seems to indicate we always pray for it. We always seek it as far as it depends upon us. And then we leave the rest ultimately in God's hands. I don't know if you have ever had a Uh, argument, those of you who are married, if you ever had an argument with your spouse where uh, maybe you ran out of time or in your anger you left the house and went away, and so you get in this argument and and you finally say, you know what, I have to go, I got to go to work, I got to go wherever, and you leave the house and you, you you step on the gas to make sure they understand how mad you are, and you slam the door and you drive off down the street and you get to your office or wherever it is you're going, and after an hour or so you start to think, you know, this wasn't that big a deal after all, and your heart begins to soften toward them and you start to work toward forgiveness, right? So that by the end of the day, you're ready to forgive and you're ready to let it go. And then you drive home and you walk in and there's still kind of awkwardness, right? Because you've forgiven, but you don't know if they have. And you don't know what's going to happen when you walk in. And if all of a sudden that argument's going to pick up where it left off. And so you walk in and you're kind of sheepish and, will you forgive me? I forgive you. And you wait to see how they'll respond. The first part, what happened while you were at work, that's forgiveness. What happens when you get home, that's reconciliation. Drawing near again. And that's what Joseph seeks to do. I'm going to summarize a little bit of the rest of this story so we see what Joseph does. When the brothers arrive before him after 20-some years, Joseph, it says, speaks harshly to them, and at first he accuses them of being spies, right? Which is interesting because notice they thought years ago that Joseph was a spy for his father. And Joseph says, you guys are spies. They said, no, we're not spies. He goes, no, you are spies. I'm putting you all in jail but I'm going to let one of you go back and get this youngest brother, bring him back, and then I'll know you're honest. So he puts him in jail for a few days, and then after three days, he takes him out of jail, and he says, okay, new plan. 
All of you go back except one. We're going to leave one brother here. All of you go back, get the youngest brother and bring him back to me. But we are keeping one here. He looks around, there's 10 of them and he picks Simeon. I've always felt bad for Simeon, right? There's 10 of them. He goes, you, right? And put Simeon in jail. Says, go back and get Benjamin and come back here and I'll let Simeon go and we'll give you more grain. What has Joseph done? He set up a scenario now where it would be very easy for them to do exactly what they did many years before, to leave a brother behind and sell him out, to save their own skins and leave Simeon behind. One commentary I read suggested that maybe the reason he chose Simeon was because nobody really liked Simeon. Hey, if they'll leave anybody behind, they'll leave this guy. And it's interesting, you see, as you read the story of Simeon and Levi in particular, they are the most violent, argumentative of the 12 brothers. And so it very well could be that Joseph hears all this and he sees Simeon and goes, yeah, Simeon is the one that's always arguing, always fighting. I will take him and put him in jail. In order to save Simeon, they got to go back and get Benjamin. They go back home. And when they get there, Jacob says, okay, here's the grain. Joseph had also done something else. He had snuck their money back in their sacks to give them another reason not to go back. And Simeon's gone. And they say, okay, we need to go back again and bring Benjamin. And at this point, you can't blame Jacob for saying, look, every time I send you out of the house, you come back minus one brother. We're not doing it again. You're not taking Benjamin. Joseph is gone. Simeon is gone. You're not taking Benjamin. So they sit there, they eat. Probably a year goes by and they run out of food. And Jacob says, go back and buy more. They say, well, we can't. And what's interesting is what happens at this point. Judah and Reuben, two of the ones who were most involved in all of this business with Joseph, they step forward and they say, look, the man said we had to bring Benjamin back or we don't get any more food. Jacob says, why did you tell him Benjamin existed in the first place? They say, well, he asked us all these questions. We were afraid. But Judah steps up and he says, look, let it be on my head and my children's heads if I don't bring your son back. And there's been this transformation, you see, starting to work out in Judah and Reuben. They're truly repentant for what they've done. They take Benjamin, they go back. Jacob sends a big present, hoping to kind of butter up the guy in Egypt. They go back and Joseph then sees them again and he sees Benjamin And he sits them down and he eats with them. And I love this. Joseph arranges them in order of age. And they have no idea how he knows that. And it says they're looking around at each other astonished. But he gives them a lot of food and a lot of drink. And he does something interesting. Now he gives Benjamin, the youngest, five times as much food. Now, these guys are hungry, right? They've just traveled. You want to make 10 hungry men angry, give one guy five times more. What is he doing? He's stirring up this jealousy in their hearts. I'm going to give overt favoritism to the youngest. That sound familiar? And then he sends them away again with more food, but he hides his silver cup in Benjamin's bag, has them chased down. They find the cup in Benjamin's bag, and the brothers have already said, look, we didn't steal this cup. Whoever stole it will be a slave. They find it in Benjamin's bag, and you can just feel as you read the passage, this collective groan. All the brothers load back up. They go back to Egypt and here's what happens. They go in and Judah steps forward and he says, if I don't go back with Benjamin, he keeps saying, you will bring the gray head of my father down to Sheol in sorrow. He's going to die. 
And I don't want to be responsible for the death of my father because we already lost Joseph. If I lose Benjamin too, he's going to die. Let me trade myself for my younger brother. And he demonstrates that he has changed. And so Joseph sends everybody away and he reveals himself to them and he weeps and they're reunited. Joseph pursues reconciliation and waits to see, can they be trusted to draw back in to a relationship with me? See, he had forgiven them long ago, but now the question is, can I trust them? When he finds that he can, he reunites with them again. And that's often how reconciliation has to work. Often we can forgive, but Trust is very difficult to reestablish, but we always pray for it. We always seek it. We always pursue reconciliation as far as it depends upon us. And I love that you see Joseph working this out in his own life over the course of probably two years. And what's interesting is over and over and over again in this passage, at least three times, Joseph has to send everybody away so he can cry because this is so painful to him still. And when he finally reconciles with them, it says that he cried so loud that everybody in the palace could hear him. He's just wailing and he's weeping and he's crying as he embraces his brothers because this still, after 20 some years, it raises all of this tenderness and pain in his heart. Even as he's seeking reconciliation, there's pain in there. And what it shows us is this, that healing may not be complete before we're called to pursue reconciliation. In other words, it may be you still hurt And yet God says, you need to reconcile. And for the rest of your life, that pain and that scar may still be there. And yet Joseph doesn't let that pain prevent him from drawing close to them again and seeking reconciliation because it reflects the character of God. I know that there are many in here that that's exactly where you are. You just hurt so deeply from something that was done to you or said about you. It's hard to forgive and it's hard to let it go. And so the thought of reconciliation seems impossible. As far as it depends upon you, you seek it, even in the midst often of that pain. Because otherwise, bitterness creeps in and it can destroy your walk with God and your relationships with others. Yesterday, to try to get sort of ahead of the rain that was coming, uh, we went out in the front yard to to plant some flowers and try to clean up the flower beds in our front yard. And uh, it was interesting, we went out there and there are all these weeds in the front flower bed and it's a little discouraging, those of you who've tried to do this before, because you go, man, I just weeded this thing. Where did the weeds come from? Satan, right? The weeds came from the devil. I don't believe that there were weeds in the Garden of Eden because weeds will grow up and they will, they will choke out the life of all of the good plants that you want to grow. And you pull them up and they grow so fast and they keep coming back and you pull them up again. That is the way that bitterness and unforgiveness works. You forgive and you say, God, help me to forgive and let this go. And then that person's name comes up again and you feel it creeping up, don't you? You say, God, please help me forgive and let this go. And years may pass and their name comes up and ah, it still hurts. God, I want to seek reconciliation. I want to seek forgiveness. As I walked through this passage, I had to think about situations in my life where it's been difficult to forgive. And as Shannon and I were talking about the passage, uh, we, 
we're remembering a, a situation in our own life from a few years back where I uh, had a falling out with a close friend. There were some things that were said that hurt, and still, if I'm honest to this day, when I think about them, I hurt. How could he have said that? How could he have done that? And years ago, went through the process of forgiveness and even reconciliation, became friends again, and yet still, if I'm not careful, I can find my mouth, my heart, dwelling on anger and bitterness rather than letting it go. And this may be a lifelong process for many if the hurt is deep enough. And yet Joseph pursues reconciliation because he knows that's what God would do toward him. And in fact, what he has. If you know Jesus, you know that God has sought reconciliation with us even when we were enemies. Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. God gave his son, not after we'd apologized, not after we started doing better, but while we were enemies, Jesus died for us and rose again. If you don't know him this morning, that really is the message that we see in the life of Joseph. Joseph forgives because he knows the God who forgives. That is the God who gave Jesus, who wants to reconcile with you because Jesus died, took away the penalty of all of your sin. Remember, all questions of justice are answered at the cross. Jesus took the punishment that you and I deserved and rose again and defeated death and sin. And because he forgives, now you and I are called to forgive. And we are called to seek reconciliation as far as we are able, even when it's difficult, even when it's painful, even when we haven't healed, and to constantly come back to the power of God for reconciliation and forgiveness. I think there's two groups this morning, and most of us fall into both categories, right? First is those who have been wronged. As I've been talking, some of you, maybe most of you, you you have a face in your mind, whether it's a spouse, a parent, a child, a friend, whoever it is, a roommate. You say, that person has hurt me and I've never forgiven or sought reconciliation. The message of Genesis this morning is if you've been wronged, you pray and you seek reconciliation, even if from a human perspective, again, it seems impossible, as far as it depends on you, so that you can walk away from that situation. If they are unwilling to reconcile or it's impossible, you can still walk away with a clear conscience and say, God, I've done all I can to forgive, to let it go. So when I see that person at HEB or Target, I'm not going to beat them up with my cucumber. I'm not going to give them a dirty look, all right? I'm not even going to walk away and try to make sure my spouse and kids know what a terrible person that guy is or tweet it or post it on Facebook or whatever it may be, right? I'm going to let it go. As far as it depends on me, I will seek reconciliation if I've been wronged. Again, I know for some, this really is, is a deep, deep matter because of things you've suffered. And that's what God calls us toward and we see in the life of Joseph. I go, if Joseph could do this, through God's power. So can we. And then if you are the one who's wronged somebody, admit it and seek forgiveness. 
to move toward the person that you have wronged and seek forgiveness so healing and reconciliation can begin. Both of these applications are supernatural and incredibly difficult, but it is in the power of God's Spirit as a model of what Jesus has done for us that we do this. So we move toward others and we seek forgiveness because as Joseph saw, it is the power of God that makes reconciliation possible. Forgiveness is certainly not the way of the world. The way of the world is revenge that leads to more revenge that leads to more revenge and a cycle of hatred and pain and revenge and destruction. And what the word of God says is hop off that cycle and release those people to God's justice, to God's plan. That's why Jesus will say, pray for your enemies and those who persecute you, right? Seek forgiveness. That's why he tells Peter, you forgive how many times? 70 times seven. That doesn't mean you keep a little chart, get up to 490, and then you're done. You keep forgiving, you keep forgiving, you keep forgiving just as God has forgiven you in Jesus Christ and then said, I want a relationship with you. I want to know you. You were my enemy, now you're my friend. And that's the God we serve. And that sort of supernatural forgiveness leads us and leads others to draw closer to him and know him and reflects his character. God's power makes reconciliation possible because of the character of God and the death and resurrection of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word. This is a difficult passage to apply, not because it's tough to understand necessarily, but because uh, it hurts, it costs us to forgive just as it costs you. Those who forgive will often bear the price of that forgiveness, and you know that. And yet you have given us all of the resources to pay that price through the power of your Spirit. So I pray, help us to do it, to forgive others as you've forgiven us, so that we might reflect the love of Jesus. Father, I pray, soften our hearts, heal those pains and those hurts, and restore us to you, and restore us to community, even with those that have wronged us. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Have a wonderful week.